an earlier generation saw nothing weird or corny about uh, screwball comedies from the 30s or musicals or, or westerns or anything. But the succeeding generation didn't feel that way. You know, uh, old musicals, old MGM musicals are a tougher sell to a younger audience. Whereas noir was all about the loss of innocence to begin with. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. Down these mean streets, a podcast must go. We walk the streets of Dark City with TCM host and author Eddie Muller. Plus, September 29th is Silent Movie Day. We'll find out why. What's the best present you could give Nitrateville Radio on Silent Movie Day? To subscribe at the podcast app of your choice, so you never miss an episode. And to leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks, you shouldn't have. As a food writer, I get lots of them. Are you planning any coverage for National Dill Gherkin Day? Maybe my client would be good for any National Fried Chicken Month roundups that you're planning. Who comes up with these things? What makes them official? Who cares? But one caught my eye and won my full support. Silent Movie Day, set for September 29th. Who came up with this thing? Well, that's what we're about to find out. Uh, my name is Brandy Cox, and I'm a senior film archivist at the Academy of Motion Pictures Arts and Sciences Film Archive. Uh, I've been there for 19 years, and for about 15 of those 19 years, I've worked almost exclusively on uh, processing collections that largely consist of silent movie content, the largest of which is David Shepard's Film Preservation Associates Collection, which is uh, by volume the largest collection we have in our vaults. It's over 25,000 items. Wow. Hi, I'm Stephen Hill. I'm the uh, Associate Motion Picture Curator of uh, UCLA Film and Television Archive. Uh, I've been at UCLA for 15 years now, and before that, I got my master's degree at UCLA uh, in moving image archive studies. And that's, in fact, when I met Brandy, uh, I was interning over at the Academy and uh, I noticed she was watching something on a monitor and I go, ooh, that looks like uh, Valentino in a film that I haven't seen. And it was uh, some clips from the young Raja that uh, she was looking at. And um, we met there and within a year or two, once I got hired at UCLA, uh, we did the silent treatment digest for right. what, 10 years Randy? 10 years, yes. Yeah. And then National Silent F Movie Day, which I understand is now Silent Movie Day because it's international. Yep. Uh, tell me uh, 
What's the idea behind that? At the top of this year in January, a colleague slash former member of the George Eastman Museum, Chad Hunter, he he is a subscriber to a Google group that I'm also a subscriber to called Art House Convergence. And I noticed that he, he regularly posted there when he was a programmer for a local Pittsburgh art house. And in January, he announced that he was going to be moving on from his uh, specific programming duties and taking on the role as executive director of Video Trust. And then he added a PS to his uh, message saying, oh, I still want to keep my hands in the programming world, though I can't completely let go. So I'm, I'm launching the Pittsburgh Silent Film Society. So if anybody has any uh, suggestions on current or up-and-coming restorations, please reach out to me. And I thought to myself, is this the same Chad Hunter that was, you know, he was essentially a faculty member when I was a student there back in 2001. And I reached out to him. I said, you know, do you remember me? It's 20, it's been 20 years since I had been in touch with Chad. And he remembered everything. So he was glad that I reached out to him. So we all got together over Zoom in the, the gen- in January of 2021. And Chad was mentioning how he'd like to create a, a really substantial hook to help kind of launch the Pittsburgh Silent Film Society and its subsequent festival. And he said, what do you guys think about a National Silent Movie Day? And I kind of, I thought to myself, well, isn't, isn't, there already, isn't there already one? It just seems like there's a national day for every single thing on this planet. Sure. And so he said, well, I've done some research. He goes, and there's a, there's a, a national drive-in movie day. There's a global <laughs> movie day. He goes, but there's no silent movie day. And I was like, oh, and I mean, my, the, light, the light bulb is just going <laughs> off in my head. I'm like, no, I'm like, we've got to do this. So why September 29th? Is there some significance to that day? No, there's none whatsoever. It's uh, it was just a date that fell in. It, it wasn't already occupied by something else silent film related, and so and maybe it's best that it's not because let's say if it was a special day related to Buster Keaton. Well, then right. the Harold Lloyd fans and the Chaplin fans. Well, why didn't you pick us? So it's kind <laughs> of a nice neutral territory to to have a, a day, and it's really you know it, it's it's a celebration of silent film and. and in not having it tied to an event, I think opens it up to, you know, whatever, uh, you know, the, all the different venues across the world, hopefully at this point, uh, want to, want to, want to share. And, um, I was surprised as well that there wasn't already a silent movie day, although I'd never heard of one. Um, and so it was, you know, and really our mission, Brandy and I worked, you know, with the silent treatment as a digest and we've been doing a, a screening series for almost a decade now is that we, you know, our mission has always been to try to try to go beyond the stereotypes, all the negative stereotypes that silent film has accumulated over the years um, and show people what we see and what we've seen and how great the art form really is. And right. once all those, those have been, uh, have been kind of pulled out of the consciousness of the folks and, you know, my, my own kids, I've used them as, as, uh, test animals <laughs> a little bit <laughs> sure. where I haven't forced anything on them, but I've had them by osmosis. They've kind of, they, you know, they'll, they'll see what I'm watching something and they come in and guess what? They, all of the things that people use as excuses not to see silent films, well, they, they're just not there. They come down a film that's in a you know pretty good transfer with uh, run at the right speed with a great soundtrack, 
going and they sit and they watch, you know, and then sometimes they request films, silent films. We had one night where my older son came in with the Buster Keaton box set and said, Hey, it's Saturday night, movie night. Let's watch some Buster Keaton. And then my younger son said, you know what? I, I, I've really been in the mood for Harold Lloyd and we just got a safety last Blu-ray. And then my daughter who was really young at the time says, you know, what? I'm feeling Melies tonight. <laughs> and I thought, you know what? This is either the greatest thing I've ever done or I've destroyed their lives forever. I'm not right. sure which, but you know, again, and that same principle, you know, goes to with our screening series and hopefully silent movie day will become kind of a beacon that will, you know, bring people in and, 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 you know, reexamine silent film, give it a, you know, give it a, a true opportunity to, you know, enchant and delight that we all know it can do. Yeah, well, you know, I was thinking, I was looking at the site and it was talking about the, the thing you always hear that 80% of silence are lost. Um, but, you know, the the thing is, we really live in the golden age of silent film at this point, because what survives has never been treated better. It's available, I mean, there's a practically infinite silent films on YouTube and every level of quality. Uh, but there are superb Blu-ray releases. There are things turning up on streaming channels. You know, there are a few on Criterion Channel or a few on HBO Max uh, in their TCM section. The access to it, especially for those of us who grew up in the, you know, be in the right basement on the right night and somebody will be screening the gold rush it's it's just a whole different world now of accessibility the trouble is everything else is infinitely accessible too so you have to (laughs) you know get that you know get them to watch this instead of you know old reruns of you know barnaby jones or whatever (laughs) (laughs) well the latest marvel you know uh franchise or what have you there's quite a there's a lot of a lot of that and, and luckily silent film kind of has its own personality that you know at times will stand out and i think people just need a little bit of a push you know and if you know once they when we used to do the silent treatment at the old silent movie theater on fairfax in hollywood we'd get we'd get emails after shows because they would have these monthly passes and so the, and that'll also allow them to come to the silent treatment screenings and we'd get these young kids in their tw- you know early to mid-20s writing you know, I never wanted to see a silent film, never. And I had nothing to do. And I just said, I'll kill time while the silent movie's going on. And now I can't wait to see another one. And it was that kind of thing. It just like, you know, blows your mind because you're like, wow, they really gave it a chance, you know, even though they probably even went in with a negative attitude and they came out with a completely different perspective. Right. Well, I'm looking at the map here that you've got with the little icons of things that are being screened. Um, And there's a nice assortment of screenings in different cities, mostly East Coast to Midwest, I see. Uh, And and then there are also um, icons of, I guess those are laptops? Uh, Yes, they're laptops. Okay. And that's for things that are happening online including tcm doing most of the day with silent films i mean now that's a coup how did that happen uh well we've had a long or at least i've had a long-standing relationship with uh charlie tabish at who's the vice president of programming at turner and uh scott mcgee they're they've been very accessible to me i've known them for like 15 years and all you can really do is just 
send them the press release and just kind of drop that idea in their minds. And so in April, that's exactly what I did. And I said, you know, I just want to let you guys know about this new initiative that I've been involved in. And, you know, at the time they they were just kind of saying, oh, this is, you know, terrific. We're, we're glad you, we're glad you let us know, you know, you've let us know about it. Beyond that, they can't make any promises, but I'm just kind of just letting them know that this right. is, you know, now a thing. And then around June is when he got back to me, uh, Charlie got back to me and said, so what do you think we should run this day? And I, I mean, all of a sudden my ears perked up right. and I'm like, I'm sorry, what'd you say? And I'm like, are you, are, you actually, are you actually seriously considering this? And it sounded at the, at, when we were kind of having short email exchanges, it, I didn't want to get too excited. It sounded like maybe they throw, you know, two or three pictures up and not run 24 hours of silent movies. I mean, this is, this is, this is a, definitely a coup from 6 a.m. the 29th to 6 a.m. on the 30th. It's silent movies with a break with, uh, you know, documentaries and then you're back to silent movies. So, uh, yes, I, I'm not quite sure. The stars really aligned when it right. came to this. <laughs> and uh, this, this particular interview was very well-timed because that information came in at 9.30 at night just this past Sunday. We, yeah. we had no idea if this was going to actually happen. <laughs> so I'm glad that this, this worked out as it did because now we can, uh, you know, celebrate that news that, you know, the biggest broadcast, one of the biggest broadcasts of uh, cinema programming is now, is now jumping, you know, jumping in with us in our inaugural year. And I mean, I don't know about you, but there's about 27 events so far, and it's not even September 1st. And a big, a big chunk of those events are in-person events. And I have to say in a pandemic year, this is a major win that we've got 20 plus in-person events going on. And to think about what silent movie day in 2022 could bring it's just, it's, it's, we're already off to a roaring good start. It's all very, you know, it's the, it's all the motion is, it's, it's going to go and it's going to go. So I'm thrilled that we've gone, we've gotten this far. I, I've been pretty, you know, pretty happy and, and surprised at, at the reaction. Uh, I think even the online programming is really important because that has the ability to reach into those territories where they're, there isn't going to be any theatrical. Right. Maybe they can't, maybe there's just not, you know, a theater that has that kind of interest. I think the whole online genre from watching uh, silent film from Port Noni last year, I watched some of the, the Bonn uh, silent film festival just a couple of weeks ago online. And it's great to be able to have that access. It's not like being in, it's, you know, sadly, it's not like being in a theater and experiencing it live, but I think for a, you know, for an educational and just entertainment experience for those that don't happen to live in a major metropolis or somewhere that has a festival. It's, it's really cool that uh, that's also, you know, we're seeing a lot of that kind of activity too. Now I see one little icon on Toronto. Uh, is that, mm-hmm. is that the international part? Just the one so far? Yes. We, when we early, when we made the announcement early on, we have gotten, we did get interest from uh, the United Kingdom and from Italy and from uh, British Columbia, uh, but so far Toronto is the only one that has relayed any information to us that they wanted to participate, and they have provided us with the event information. So the, the you know so that's why we know the international interest is there. It's 
kind of been expressed to us, but this was kind of our proof of concept year and we wanted to just kind of keep it, keep it local, keep it within the United States and, and with the hopes that we could expand it as the years, you know, advanced. So we just, we didn't want to overstep ourselves and go, Oh, we're just going to go global. We're going to go global right away. It's like, well, let's give this a shot, you know, in 2021. And if it really takes off, we can certainly collaborate with the international partners. It's been very gratifying, you know, to see this kind of response, considering, you know, we're just three guys, you know, three people, excuse me, uh, with Zoom <laughs> on our phone. Sorry, Randy. But we've been able to, you know, to to bring this thing into fruition with just, you know, we're on Zoom meetings every you know, couple of weeks and using uh, networking with everyone. And, and uh, you know what? Obviously, I think there was some appetite for this sort of thing. With TCM, it feels like maybe they were waiting for an excuse to do a day of silence, uh, maybe Jacqueline Stewart was, you know, it maybe not, but it feels like, you know, they're like, oh, thank goodness. Now we have that excuse, the golden ticket. We can do our, you know, 24 hour silent marathon now, um, which is great. And uh, we're happy to give anyone an excuse to, <laughs> to do that sort of thing. Um, but it's been fun. And uh, look, you know, we're looking forward to it. at UCLA. We're going to be doing a uh, Harold Lloyd where we've uh, scanned uh, three of our tinted preservation prints. It's three of his shorts. And we'll have uh, Suzanne Lloyd there. To, uh, we'll talk after the screening. It'll be an online thing because we still haven't opened our theater yet. But uh, figured, you know what, that would be a great way. And especially since Suzanne was so nice to, to let us access Harold Lloyd images and kind of let him be... Uh, He's kind of a poster boy for uh, right. for the event <laughs> to a large extent. So, you know, that's and so I thought, great. So UCLA can contribute. But, you know, again, the way it's uh, it's kind of gone. And I'm really happy that we're, we're looking at it more internationally because, um, you know, being more inclusive. I, I, border shouldn't mean anything in this sort of a you know cultural exchange. Links to events planned for Silent Movie Day, September 29th, will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. I wonder why you brought me here tonight. I mean, all of a sudden, boom, husband gone, soft lights, quiet room, opportunity. What are you looking for? Huh? Well, just a few hundred thousand dollars. There's nothing here. I can't stand it anymore. What if they do hang me? They're not going to hang you, baby. It's better than going on this way. They're not going to hang you. Because you're going to do it and I'm going to help you. Let me go with you. Please, Dix, please. Are you crazy? I'm on the lamb. I want it bad. Packing heat. If there's any trouble, what good would you be? I could drive. I've been looking for someone for a long time. I didn't know her name or where she lived. I'd never seen her before. And a girl was killed, and because of that, I found what I was looking for. Film noirs were distress flares launched onto America's movie screens by artists working the night shift at the Dream Factory. That's how Eddie Muller begins his book Dark City, The Lost World of Film Noir, first published in 1998 and now out in an expanded photo-filled edition from TCM and Running Press. 
The new addition marks not only Muller's eminence as a TCM host, bringing noir into our lives each Saturday night with Noir Alley, but the influence he's had building interest in film noir since the book first came out. Dark City led to programming rare noirs at the American Cinematheque in Los Angeles, and then to the Noir City Traveling Festival of hard-to-see gems in various cities. It plays at the Music Box here in Chicago. That led to creating the Film Noir Foundation, which seeks to find and preserve noirs, many of which have been released on Blu-ray by Flickr Alley. And in 2014, to hosting noirs on TCM, the ultimate mass exposure for a cult genre. Noir, the word the French came up with for a stylistic school of American crime thrillers that just kind of happened in the 1940s, is hotter than it's ever been, and fans can barely keep up with the flood of video releases of low-budget films they thought they'd never see. Dark City, the book, is less a narrative history than a poetic dance through the themes of the genre that keep recurring like a guilty memory. Likewise, the conversation I had with Eddie Muller from his home in San Francisco bounced around familiar names and themes of the genre, and like any conversation between film buffs was often derailed by a favorite title. Because in noir there's always more to uncover in the darkness. To start off, I mean, I, I was just curious, how did you become the film noir guy? And I mean, you know, and you are the film noir guy. I mean, it, it's like a nice little racket you got here in this film noir thing. Uh, <laughs> you know, was there ever a chance that you're going to be like the screwball comedy guy or anything like that? No, 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 no. Uh, I will say this is all a happy accident, but... Um, if it was going, if I was going to have any, anything to do with film in the way that it has worked out, it would, it would be noir. There, there's like no other aspect of film that I'm this deeply interested in. I mean, I love all of cinema and I know a lot about it beyond noir, but to the degree that I've become immersed in film noir, I don't think that would have happened with any other um, genre, if you want to use that term. Uh, and, and it just happened because honestly, my thing, Mike, is that I always wanted to be a writer. That was the main thing. And so, um, and I always was, I mean, I've only, uh, painted out this bar and written for a living. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, when, when I started, I, I wanted to write books. And the first book I ever did was called Grindhouse, The Forbidden World of Adults-Only Cinema, which St. Martin's published in the late 1990s. It was about the history of adults-only cinema, right? Like what that meant. And, and it's a fascinating sociological study, except the films aren't any good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's rare to find the good, uh, you know, adults-only movie in 1940 is not going to really set the world on fire. So when that book did okay, and St. Martin's, who published it, uh, said, what do you want to do for an encore? And that's when I decided I want to do a book about film noir. And, it, you know, it was a bit brazen because I certainly did not consider myself to be any expert on film noir. And whereas no books had been on the subject of adults-only movies, a lot of books had been written about film noir at that point. But I just took a slightly different 
approach to it, a very uh, a journalistic but non-academic approach to the material uh, that served me well and helped help my voice kind of come through. And then after that, it just took off because then I was invited to program festivals based on the book. And, uh, that kind of snowballed, and then I created the, the Film Noir Foundation because it was wanted to show at my festivals that I couldn't find. So I learned how to become a film detective and a film restorationist. And, and lo and behold, uh, a certain time after that, TCM called. And, uh, and now I have a TV show, and it was a very opportune time to, to bring back the original book. Yeah, so, um, yeah, the original one came out in 1998. Now, it's interesting, you say uh, at the time... It was you wrote it partly because noirs were so hard to find. I mean, it wasn't hard to see, you know, out of the past or the big sleep. But when you got into the, you know, the gritty little ones that had Charles McGraw or John Payne in them or something like that, that's what it was hard to track down. And that's really changed since then, which you can take some credit for. Well, I, I appreciate your saying that. It's more more elements involved than just me, but uh, I was kind of to use a film noir term, I was kind of giant spot in that, uh, in that case, but you're, you're, you describe it perfectly. Uh, when I was doing the research for the original book and there were films that I'd heard about, let's, you know, 99 river street or roadblock right. <laughs> or something like that. They, um, I actually had to find these films through a network of film fans who didn't even have email at that point, they didn't even have email. They still corresponded by letter. And I would tap into this and get packed care packages of VHS dupes of these movies that these guys had collected. And they were all guys that they had collected, you know, taping them off late night TV in Pittsburgh or, you know, someplace. And, and that's how I saw a lot of these movies which made perfect sense to me because that's kind of how I saw a lot of these films in the first place when I was growing up, right. You know, on dialing for dollars or movies till dawn <laughs> or something like that. So, so all of this made perfect sense to me. But then, uh, as you know, a, a very few years after dark city came out, um, the, the studios started pulling stuff out of their vaults and putting them out. Uh, you know, there, there were some, things that were released on VHS early on. I you know, there was like a Republic VHS series and uh, a lot of the RKO movies were out on VHS, but it wasn't until um, DVD came in, uh, you know, that Warner brothers put out those first box sets of film noir DVDs and then Fox, Fox put out a set and then uh, Sony who owns the Columbia library, they put out a set and then all of a sudden there was, there was uh, due in large measure to the new uh, technology, uh, you know, there, there was this renaissance that kind of happened. And I, and I was, honestly, I was right in the middle of it. Yeah, I mean, that's the interesting thing. You say early on also that of all the varieties of films Hollywood produced during the glory days of the studio system, noirs hold up best. And... I think that popularity is a pretty recent thing. I mean, we were roughly the same age and both grew up in the 70s. And, you know, 
old movies nostalgia was Marx Brothers and MGM musicals. I mean, nobody made that's film noir back in the 70s. So, you know, <laughs> it's sort of taken off lately. Uh, why do you think people finally... No, that's a, that's a good point. Uh, I know I know exactly what you're asking. Like, why did the culture finally catch up to these films as opposed to the other way around, right? Uh, and I think that has a lot to do with um, the tenor of the times, honestly. I think that at a certain point, um, uh, an earlier generation saw nothing weird or corny about uh, screwball comedies from the 30s or musicals or, or Westerns or anything, but the succeeding generation didn't feel that way. You know, uh, old musicals, old MGM musicals are a tougher sell to a younger audience. Whereas noir was all about the loss of innocence to begin with. That's kind of what it was. And so, you know, when I get serious about the subject, I say, well, you know, this was the first time that an American popular entertainment actually focused the, as a movement on the flaws in the system and, and the things that were wrong in the culture and why people couldn't live the American dream. That was the first, film noir is the first time, you know, novels had written that, you know, had been about that. Stage plays had been about that, but not movies, not, not a lot of movies all at one time. So, so that was really the difference. And I think that's what later uh, audiences or viewers, later viewers relate to. It's like, wow, this is, you know, this stuff still is saying something, you know, it, it, it's not, we're going to, we're going to make it. It's going to be happily ever after. It's like, no, they're, it doesn't work out that way for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah, let's talk about where noir comes from. I mean, a lot of people talk about, you know, what's the first noir? And I'm not so interested in trying to identify some magical film. It's not like, you know, every, impossible. Every, yeah, it's not like everybody saw The Stranger on the Third Floor and Boris Inkster invented everything for everybody. You know, it didn't work that way. But there are definitely things where you see it sort of coming you know, sort of poking through in the movies of the 30s. Some gangster movies seem to be kind of getting there, but why aren't gangster movies exactly like noir? Because I think the uh, in the gangster movies, which really came out of the Depression, uh, they were reflecting in society at the time. And, the, you know, the rise of Pretty Boy Floyd and John Dillinger and, you know, organized there's organized crime and then there's outlaw crime right uh like al capone is organized crime john dillinger is outlaw crime but i think the average person has a hard time identifying with those criminals like choosing a criminal lifestyle as a form of defiance is what kind of marked those early movies there, there's a certain noirish element to them i, I cannot deny but noir is more about the ordinary person who suddenly realizes they're capable of doing really dastardly things, and they're not doing it to become a crime kingpin. They're just doing it because, you know, I want to buy a gas station or I want to impress this woman or some, you know, in noir, the motivations are much more meager 
that I'm going to take over this town and I'm going to control the rackets. You know, that that's not as common, except when you see it become an alternative to the system and, and movies like force of evil and I walk alone and all this, where the criminals have realized, Hey, this is the way it works, right? I can do this too. I'm just doing it for all the stuff that's illegal. Yeah. So, so that's part of it, but I, I couldn't agree more with your assessment that there's no, uh, you know, light bulb that went off or in the case of noir light bulb that went out, um, that suddenly started it. I mean, there, there was a, a movement, an artistic movement that happened in Hollywood. And, and my book tries to trace those elements that fell into place that made that happen. But you can definitely see, uh, you know, precursors to that movement throughout movie history. You know, there, there are silent films that definitely feel like noir. There are pre-code films, especially that feel like noir. Uh, and as you pointed out, gangster pictures from the thirties that, that sort of feel like noir, but it didn't all coalesce into a movement until the 1940s. Yeah. And it also seems like, I mean, what you see in the gangster movies is that the gangster is an aberration and eventually society will cure itself of him is the, you know, the idea, whether or not we believe that, that, you know, we'll clean him up and, you know, the, the new deal and, and, good government will take care of this problem. And that's, that goes away certainly in noir. You know, there are many noirs, like you say, like, like force of evil. They're like literally about how terrible society actually is. Yeah. And how unfair it is and how the game is, is easily rigged by the people that know how to rig it, you know? Uh, but you, you hit on the head. I mean, whereas every gangster movie of the 1930s ended up with the, the, the cancer being gunned down in the street in the 1940s, it's now in the system and that's, they're running things. Yeah. You know, so a guy, so uh, like I walk alone, which I write about at some length in, in this new volume of dark city, it hits it right on the head. You know, it's a couple of bootleggers who are just small time criminals in the thirties. And then one of them goes to prison. And when he gets out in the forties, his partner is now, a big man, you know, owns a nightclub is politically connected and he's a criminal. He is a criminal, but he has figured out how to make crime pay. Yeah. What, what do you, what are some other elements that, that seem to develop in noir and set it apart from the, from thirties crime films? I mean, essentially we're talking crime films here, but they start to take a particular cast at some point there in the, in the forties. Well, for me, the key thing about noir and, I am uh, sort of separate the style of the films from the thematic content of the films. Like a lot of times, like on Noir Alley, I'll show a film that just feels totally like a film noir, but everybody will argue, but it's not because it doesn't have this element or that element. But for me, looking at it from a writing standpoint, the, the thing that is unique to noir is that the audience is identifying with the people that are doing the wrong thing. So essentially the a very different thing from the thirties, especially the, you know, uh, post code movies of the thirties is that your protagonist can be the quote unquote bad guy or bad woman, you know, that, that the story follows them and they're doing, they're breaking the law. They're breaking the moral code, whatever it is. I mean, so in that respect, 
there's no film more important than Double Indemnity because that ended up, you know, being a huge box office hit, being nominated for a bunch of Oscars. And it's about two people in an adulterous love affair who are plotting to murder her husband. That's somewhat unique <laughs> yeah. in the history of Hollywood, right? So that changed everything. The rules changed at that point. And, uh, and it became somewhat alarming in certain parts of the country, you know, because by the 19, end of the 1940s, every studio in Hollywood was making, you know, at least eight to 10 of these pictures a year. And theater owners, as they like to say back then in the sticks, were saying, what, what's going on? You know, you're, you're terrorizing our audience <laughs> with the, these films, you know? Uh, I mean, it's a very, very scary depiction of the country. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So they kind of, everything changed though, because then TV came in and movies had to, had to react to survive and become widescreen and technicolor and all that kind of stuff. And so insidiously noir kind of moved on to television, you know, in a, in a lot of uh, TV shows, uh, Alfred Hitchcock presents and suspense and playhouse 90, a lot of, a lot would have constituted noir in the forties became TV in the fifties. Right, and you see the names from noir movies move so easily into television. You know the the Joseph H. Lewis's and and uh, you know all all those kind of exactly, exactly directors. Nick Ray directed television, and uh, you know Jacques Tenor directed television. Uh, it's very very interesting. That's a there there have been some inroads in studying that, uh, but it's not a it's not common knowledge yet that that's kind of where noir went another thing that that you talk a lot of about not surprisingly a book called dark city uh is that it's really a genre about cities even though there are noirs that have you know rural aspects to them i mean out of the past which you know has a lot of small town fishing in it, for instance, uh, you know, <laughs> kind of, uh, it always struck me how odd that is that it gets so bucolic for a while, but basically it's about cities and cities are tough, mean places full of strangers. So, you know, it's not surprising that noir kind of finds a natural home there. Yeah, absolutely. That, that is a huge part of it. And, I did. I mean, I talk about that at some length yeah. <laughs> in the book, you know, the whole welcome to dark city chapter is sort of about that. And, you know, uh, big urban American cities were a relatively new phenomenon in the 20th century, you know, electricity, <laughs> a relatively new phenomenon and the ability to, to move about freely in very, very congested areas. Uh, is sort of part and parcel of these these stories. You know, the claustrophobia, the feeling that my neighbor knows my business, do I trust them? All this kind of stuff became very, very important to the, especially to the crime fiction that informed film noir. And that so much of film noir is based on. That, that was very, very urban fiction. Yeah. Do you think, can you make a rural noir? Is there such a thing? Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I, absolutely. It's funny. You know, uh, a, a friend of mine who's a really, really writer named Daniel Woodrell has written uh, a number of noir novels set in the Ozarks. And 
I was talking to Daniel. I did an interview with him one time, and I was talking to him about, um, you know, that he he was credited with creating this subgenre called hillbilly noir, which he hated. He hated, and and eventually he hated people saying that he wrote noir. But he wrote crime novels set in that part of the country, and they they very much to me are noir stories. You you may be familiar with there was a movie from one of his. Uh, novels called winter's bone oh, okay like the movie that made jennifer lawrence a star right, you know right. it's about it's about uh you know meth in the ozarks and uh yeah it's a it's an incredible movie and also an absolutely fantastic novel so yes you can you can do it because i just think that there are all kinds of extensions of of noir because for me it is an outgrowth of of crime fiction and the crime genre. And uh, I don't see it as being exclusively limited to the city, but certainly film noir, which we know of and what we're primarily talking about in relation to my book, um, is an urban thing. Yeah. Plus, yeah. that was also the, con- the conceit of my book and the way I, I structured it was you know, because there had been other books about noir and I didn't want to take the same approach, the same theoretical approach and just kind of deconstructing them. I like the idea that what if all these stories took place in this mythological city, which is the way it, which is the way it felt to me when you've watched so many of them. It's like, haven't these people, didn't they hear about the guy who did this? <laughs> he ended up dead. Like, why don't they know that story? You know, uh, because it feels like they're all taking place in the same, the same dark city. Yeah. I know. It's the same reason why no one can figure out that Count Alucard is just Dracula backwards, you know? So. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, speaking of him, Robert Siodmak, uh, he's one of the people you talk about a lot. I mean, to me, an essential noir director and basically someone that, you know, anytime someone puts out a new uh, Blu-ray of a Robert C. Odmack film, I'll, I'll order it just cause you know, it's the odds that it's good are really high. Because it's worth it. Yeah. 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 Yes. Um, let's talk about the, the Germans. I mean, it's such a big part of it. I mean, Fritz Lang is the most obvious one, but C. Odmack's another one. Uh, and then you get oddball figures like Joe May and, uh, Gustav Machati and people turning up right, making noirs right. along the way. Um, tell me about. Although I'm sure that these, I'm sure these guys would would say, "Don't confuse me." You know, like uh, Gustav Machati was a uh, was Czech, and yeah. of course, uh, you know, uh, Preminger and Billy Wilder are going to stress that they're Austrians, not Germans. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and Siadmak Sia- was a German. You know. Um, but it is interesting how, you know, that part of the world, uh, you know, a big part of noir and the noir vision from that part of the world. Understandably so, I think. Yeah. No, I mean, the, the easy thing to say is that noir is where German expressionist look meets hard-boiled writing, uh, which is maybe simplistic but not wrong. Uh, Correct. That's exactly that's exactly the way I would say it. It is simplifying it, but it's also, in a nutshell, it's kind of true. You know, because the the style of writing and the language was very much created in America, 
but it really took that European visual sensibility to find a corollary to the language of, of you know, this new language of crime fiction in America. And and when those two got together, that that's where you got your noir. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, tell me, you know, you talk a lot about Lang in particular. Uh, tell me about his place in noir. I mean, he sort of transcends it as Hitchcock does, but he's also pretty essential to it. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I when I first started reading about film noir and, and picking the movies I was going to go see in rep houses back in the 1970s, he was the king, you know, I mean, it was all Fritz Lang. There were, there were, there were two filmmakers probably. Um, I, I was also kind of into John Ford. He had a massive reputation back then, but it was Alfred Hitchcock and Fritz Lang were considered to be the, the two great directors. And it's really interesting to realize how much Lang struggled in the United States yeah. to maintain that reputation. You know, because when he came to America from Germany, I mean, he he was his reputation far exceeded that of Alfred Hitchcock. Hitchcock was still a tyro when Fritz Lang was considered the greatest filmmaker in the world. You know, he'd made Metropolis and the, the Mabuse films and all that. And then uh, M, which is the first great sound film. And, uh, you know, Hitchcock hadn't really done anything resembling a Hitchcock movie at that point. Uh, but it was hard for him because he was such an autocrat and, and such an arrogant guy that <laughs> the, stu- the studio system was not kind to him. And, and I think some executives in Hollywood went out of their way to kind of belittle him and to sort of cut him off at the knees. But it was, it was in crime films especially where I think he was most comfortable. So when, when he started, you know, he he was making really great stuff in the thirties. You know, you only live once. And, and I even really like his picture, you and me with George Raft and Sylvia Sidney. Uh, but then when he made woman in the window and Scarlet street, uh, then he really hit his stride in America. Ministry of fear was great. You know, I mean, he made so many really good movies. And then of course the big heat and, uh, you know, so, um, he, he does have a, uh, a special place. Although it's interesting to note that not everything Fritz Lang made was a great film. Yeah. I actually think that Robert C. Admack probably has a better track record as a director in Hollywood than, than Fritz Lang. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, let's talk about C. Admack then. As noted, I really like him. Yeah, I mean, to me, he's like the perfect director to, to hook onto if you're talking about noir. Because, uh, you know, he he started in the silent era. He, he, like, wrote title cards and things for the silence. Then he was involved in that People on Sunday film, which was kind of a landmark uh, in European cinema because so many future filmmakers, uh, Billy Wilder, Siad Mack, uh, Edgar Ulmer, uh, Eugene Schuften, the cinematographer, worked on that. Uh, that were that would become hugely important. All worked on that film, but then but Siadmak was doing noir type stories in Europe early on, and then when he came to America, you know he he got work in the B unit, 
you know, and whereas Lang was like, what a come down. I'm the greatest filmmaker in the world. Siadmak just did the work. Yeah. And then he got noticed and, and it was uh, really Joan Harrison, Hitchcock's protege who saw what he was capable of and hired him to direct Phantom Lady, which was one of the essential uh, landmarks in the film noir movement. And then after that, he was pretty much doing noir exclusively, right? Strange Affair of Uncle Harry and Christmas Holiday and The Killers and, you know, uh, uh, Cry of the City and Crisscross, which is an absolute masterpiece. And, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm, one thing that really excites me is I'm only now catching up with Ziad Max's work once he left Hollywood and went back to Europe. You know, I'm, I'm tracking down films he made back in Germany, and there's some great stuff there. You know, this film, The Devil Strikes at Night, right. is, is phenomenal. It's great. Yeah, uh, no, I saw that uh, in Noir City Online last year. Uh, right. Yeah, very good. Terrific very good. film, yeah. And how how uh, rare rare is it that a that a filmmaker leaves the their war torn country and then returns to it after the war and then makes a film about that country during the war years, which yeah. is quite rare, you know. And it was it, it gave that film a real resonance. Yeah. No, and I love Phantom Lady. I mean, that's one I saw when I was pretty young, and it's just. A perfect example of pure, you know, of just solid style throughout. I mean, it doesn't have any stars of any real consequence in it, although Ella Raines is pretty good in it. But, uh, yes, please, you know, please, it's... Ella Raines, she's my heart throb. Okay. You can't, you can't talk like that about it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I mean, and this... Elijah Cook. Yeah, Elijah Cook, that, that, you know, drum scene is is so fantastic. But, you know, it's really Siad Mac and the camera are the stars of that movie. I want you to give give all due credit to producer Joan Harrison, who who really shepherded that project. I mean, she she recognized what was great about Cornel Woolrich's novel and how yeah. a director with a, uh, an affinity for this atmosphere and this style to really bring this off. And and she hired Siadmak, and together they really designed that film and. Uh, I, yeah, I completely agree. That is a triumph of style over logic. Yeah, <laughs> which pretty much sums up Cornell Woolrich. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about him a little. I mean, you know, kind of the quintessential noir writer uh, later on, because, I mean, the plots never add up, but boy, they hold you while you're watching them. I just watched No Man of Her Own. Uh, which Love presumes that, that Barbara Stanwyck can get away with this if no one else on earth has ever met her before. But yeah. it's okay. We we buy it and we go with it. What I love about that movie in particular is that Mitchell Lyson, who who directed the film, was not a natural in this territory. He was much more into like women's melodramas. And there's something about the combination of the two, like putting this nightmarish scenario over a woman's melodrama, which is at heart what that story is, kind of. Uh, it works brilliantly. I, I really think that's a great film. And yeah, I, I, but you know, Woolrich, you're absolutely right when you say that nobody could craft a better premise than Woolrich. And nobody had worse trouble 
trying to pay it off and, <laughs> and have it make sense in the end. But, but my, my um, explanation for that, or, or my, the reason I don't think that's a bad thing is because nightmares don't make sense. Yeah. Right. Nightmares are nightmares. They, they're, they're not logical. They're your worst fears realized. I mean, that's what a nightmare is. And, and that's what Woolrich wrote. So I excuse him for not being able to write his way out of these setups. And, and, you know, they don't make sense at the end when you close the book, but so what, right? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, and, and, you know, as you point out, I mean, really his first, uh, first move or first book to kind of make it to the movies and to, uh, get some uh you know get some of that flavor of noir into the movies in that time is is 42 uh street of chance which is mm-hmm. totally an, about a nightmare uh basically you know a guy who who sort of wakes up into a living nightmare so exactly exactly which uh I'm happy to say will be coming out on blu-ray pretty soon oh nice so um that that'll be nice, but but you know that's the that's what I appreciate about Cornell Woolrich. Like I always imagined, he was sitting in his little you know hotel room in New York, and he'd just like be drowsy or something, and he and he would think, "What if I woke up and I was somebody else?" Right, and then he would instead of instead of just losing the thought, he goes over to his typewriter and starts writing the story. And and the fact that by the last chapter it's not satisfying means less to me than the fact that the guy actually made that effort. Like you know, what what if I got? And I love the idea. In, in um, it's called the movie's called Street of Chance, but I believe the the novel is called The Black Curtain. And the idea is, you know, in in how many movies have you seen where something falls on somebody and they lose their memory? Right. And this thing falls on the guy and he regains his memory. So he realizes he's been living the last three years as somebody else. And then he has to go and figure out who he really is. I mean, come on. That's an incredible premise for a story. Well, it it points to so much of what's runs through noir characters is just, you know, guilt there's there's always guilt hanging over you and i think that's why flashbacks are so essential to it is you know if you're guilt-ridden you're thinking over those things constantly so you might as well take the movie audience with you right right yeah i completely agree and and as we were talking about a little earlier uh you know that's what i see as essential to noir is sort of putting the, the viewer or reader in the shoes of this person who knows they're doing the wrong thing and, and whether they achieve that just through um, the way the film is directed or, or through an explicit voiceover narration or something um, that's kind of essential. And also the whole flashback structure is such a great device to hook an audience. You know, uh, I just started watching this thing on that's now on TV, uh, the white Lotus. Right. Have you heard about this? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I laughed because it's like the beginning is like classic noir, the guys in the airport. And then you learn that something dreadful happened and somebody died and the body's being put on the plane. And it's like, this is (laughs) classic noir. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
but it, but it's great because it keeps you hooked because you're not sure whose body is in the box, right? Although I have a, I think I know, but you know, it's a great, great hook, a great storytelling device. And it's not new kids and <laughs> doing that one for decades. Yeah. Yeah. It always surprises me that I know it's one of the rules of screenwriting in Hollywood is no flashbacks. And it's like flashbacks are your best friend so much of the time. Now I can see thinking that you probably see a lot of screenplays where they're overdone, but you know, it's all, all about what's done well. And, you know, taking people deep into a story to reconsider it is a big yeah. thing. I mean, it's very, it, it's interesting you say that because whereas you don't see very many flashbacks in films anymore, the way they used to be used, but then you do, you know, viewers have become so sophisticated that a lot of movies now exist in a almost non-linear <laughs> narrative you know, that, that has sort of supplanted the flashback. I mean, if you, I mean, let's face it, if you look at uh, David Lynch or Christopher Nolan, these guys don't need traditional flashbacks right. because their movies are constructed entirely different. I mean, they're, they're puzzle box movies, you know? Uh, so it, it, it's interesting how in some cases, I think audiences have become more sophisticated than ever. And on the other hand, I think, um, the the short attention span that has been wrought by the internet has made traditional storytelling difficult just because their attention spans aren't sufficient to hold the story in their head. You yeah. know, it's like if stuff doesn't blow up every, every few minutes, they're like, <laughs> where was I again? I guess. Yeah. <laughs> You're reading your phone at the time anyway. That's why you missed it. Yeah. 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 Um, so the, uh, you know, you talk about different stars in the, uh, you know, in like sidebars within the book. Um, and I, I was just interested, it was interesting reading about first John Garfield and then Robert Mitchum. And I thought it's interesting to compare the two of them because they represent two very different aspects of noir. Garfield is still sort of social drama oriented and Mitchum is just pure cool. Tell me about them. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I mean, obviously Garfield represented a huge New York influence coming into Hollywood. He was sort of the point man for the whole group theater movement and everything. Uh, and bringing, as you say, social realism and all that to the movies. M Mitchum, I think might still be ahead of his time. Yeah. <laughs> just, just for his nonchalance, which really was, I don't want to spoil anything for people who idolize his cool, but it was kind of an act <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> because he was a real, he was a real pro and he took his work very seriously. And people that I know who worked with him said, you know, he, he was, yes, he drank and yes, he had this laconic attitude, but he knew everybody's script. You know, he didn't know just his lines. He knew everybody's lines. And, uh, you know, he took it very seriously, but I just think his style was so different for the time because that just make it look easy, you know, uh, coming, coming out of a period of Hollywood movie making where the actors who were revered were the actors that you could see acting. 
right? And and time has not been kind to a lot of those performers, yeah. like Paul Muni. I was just right? trying to it's watch Scarface like, last night and feeling that exactly. Yeah, because yeah. Paul Muni is just acting his ass off yeah. on the camera, and and that doesn't age well. Whereas Mitchum, you can barely see him doing <laughs> it. You know, he he looks like a guy who walked onto the set. And he's like, what are you doing? Making a movie? <laughs> if I could do this, you know, it's no problem. And uh, and and yet that was just see, Mitchum knew that the essential thing about movie acting is to just be what you are in front of the camera. Right? And then say the lines and whatever and all of that other stuff emerges, but the camera captures the truth of the person. And if you're trying too hard, that's what's going to read in the performance. And, and he was just brilliant, you know, and there are other actors like that. And I, you know, um, Gary Cooper was like that. Dana Andrews was like that. They, they just are able to, you know, in, in many ways, Jimmy Stewart was like that as well. And they, they just, there they are in front of the camera and they're able to do their lines and they don't act. And those are the actors that I think have had the greatest longevity. Well, like you say, the, their stuff hasn't aged. I mean, I recently watched Postman Always Rings Twice for the first time in a long time, and I watched He Ran All the Way for the first time. And Garfield's really good, but both movies are kind of about how his character's dumber than he thinks. And that, you know, he's he's going to get it in the end, and doesn't realize it. And, you know, and they're, they're still kind of in that 30s social drama idea I, I, that I agree. society's going to fix everything. Yes, and they're both hothouse movies. Yeah. You know, that that's what I call it. Especially He Ran All the Way. I mean, he's good in the film, but the film is what it is, and that's hothouse drama. If you look at um, Garfield's performance in The Breaking Point, which he made just before he ran all the way. That that's his best performance in a movie, uh, and I think he he is much more on the Mitchum side of the meter in that movie than he is that hot house Broadway stage group theater side, you know. And, and he's just terrific because in in the Breaking Point, you it it feels like it's him, like he he totally understands this character and his when he's all tied up in knots, you really, really feel it in that film. Whereas it seems a little too theatrical and he ran all the way. Uh, I just saw, also just saw Mitchum in a Western uh, blood on the moon. And there's a great moment where he and another guy have been slugging it out with each other. And at the end of it, Mitchum is just sort of sitting there panting and a little bit dazed. And it's like, that's what a guy would really be like after a fight, you know? (laughs) You know, he's not going in. <laughs> and I think, I think Mitchum was drawing on experience. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's just, it's so interesting that, um, you know, when he made night of the hunter, which is his most theatrical performance, it was really interesting that, um, Charles Lawton, who is one of those actor actors, you know, said that he thought Mitchum was the, the best actor he'd ever worked with. So funny that they're, they're so different. You know, their, their approach to acting is so different. 
Um, anyway, it, it's just an interesting observation. Well, and I always think it's interesting that apparently Mitchum directed the the kids in the movie a little bit. Uh, you know, because I think Lawton probably terrified them. But Mitchum was a, you yeah. know, even though he's Robert Mitchum, he was able to like tone it down and be fatherly or whatever it took to kind of get them through their right. paces. Uh, you know, there's there's yeah. enough going yes, on. I have heard that as well. Yeah. Um, you know, Night of the Hundred points to an interesting thing about noir, which is that a lot of the classics of noir bombed in their time. I mean, it's just a fact that, you know, Sweet Smell of Success bombed and Night of the Hunter did and, I don't know, Ace in the Hole, certainly. Um, mm -hmm. It took us, I don't know, and actually that first cycle right after Maltese Falcon, I mean, I don't think there's a lot of hits really in those. Maybe I wake up screaming or something, but, you know, things like... Uh, Mark, uh, no, I think I think yeah, you're right. I wake I wake up screaming was not. It was kind of a miscalculation. They didn't Fox didn't know what they had. Another movie that I put in that uh, list is Gun Crazy. Yeah, which would go on to become a very very influential film, but did no business on its release. You know, and uh, and had a botched release. In fact, that didn't help. Um, but that that's an interesting observation. I mean, that's certainly. Uh, true of a lot of these films. There are others, you know, like uh, Window and, and Double Indemnity and The Killers, uh, Gilda. Those, those were hits. You know, Postman Always Rings Twice. Those, right there are five noir films that were hits in, in any way, shape, or form. But, but you're absolutely right. And the reason for that is either because the studio didn't get it and didn't understand what the movie was and didn't even try. Um, or it was just ahead of its time and, and the audience didn't want to see that. Uh, you know, that was, I, that was the case with sweet smell of success is, you know, Burt Lancaster wanted to make that movie and the public did not want to see Burt Lancaster or Tony Curtis, those characters. So it's just like, what, I'm not even going. Right. Yeah. Uh, they didn't want to see Burt Lancaster wearing those glasses. You know, they wanted <laughs> to see him as the crimson pirate or something. You know? Right. Trapeze. Uh, so, yeah. so that was a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, exactly. It was trapeze. In fact, that, that got sweet smell of success made, you know? And so, um, but you know, that, that's the way a lot of the time, <laughs> you know, you do what you think is right and you fail and then time treats you kindly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you're lucky. Well, yeah. Even in more recent times, I mean, Blade Runner was kind of a bomb when it, or not a bomb, but it underperformed for, you know, Harrison Ford, who was so hot then. And 30 years later, it's getting a sequel, you know, so. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, I, I remember seeing that movie on opening night in San Francisco and saying, wow, this is uh, like a, I've never seen anything quite like this. You know, it was really uh, fabulous. And then the reviews were terrible. The, yeah. re the reviews of Blade Runner on release were just a big, so what? So all this stuff goes on and so what? You know, and uh, stuff. Yeah. yeah. As uh, you say, uh, time has been very good to Blade Runner. Yeah, yeah. And, well, and I feel like it kind of took, it took the war, the post-war audience to really, you know, accept it, uh, accept noir as a genre, because 
people came back from the war and they had seen, you know, the horrors of the war, the, the idea that very lightly underneath civilization, there's all kind of brutality and things like that. Um, you know, it seemed like people were receptive to that then in a way that they just weren't yet in 1942 or something like that. Yeah, I think there's, I think there's some truth to that. I think it had it, the liberation that came with the end of the war applied to artists as well as anybody else. Right. Yeah. Uh, because now, now we don't have a patriotic duty to fulfill. Now we can just go back to telling stories and artists are contrarians by nature. Right. So if yeah. you tell them you have to do one thing, they will want to do the opposite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so that was clearly what was going on in Hollywood was, you know, you got to cheer up the public. And it's like, well, you know, I'd like to write a story where like, maybe the bad guy gets away with it in the end. Can we do that? <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I've always found, yeah, yeah. And so I, I've always found in my research that, you know, to, to ascribe motivations to the people who made these films, you have to be very, very careful because in some instances there was an agenda. You know, guys like Abraham Polanski and Robert Rawson and these people, they, they had an agenda. They wanted to tell a certain type of story and get their point across. Other times it was just people making movies like, well, we did that one already. Let's do something different. How about if we did it this way instead? And there's no political or, you know, big motivation to it. It's just like, it's fun to do it a different way, right? So right up front in my book, I say, you know, some of these were just playful diversions, you know, little firecrackers going off. And some were like mortars being discharged, you know, yeah. like announcing, like we're presenting an alternative view of, of all of this. And both of those things coexisted. And both of those things had a lot to do with the film noir movement when it happened. Now, when do you think, you know, real noir kind of ceases to be, um, well, that, I mean, the film noir movement started sputtering in the, you know, mid fifties, right? Because so much of it moved to television because, uh, there wasn't quite the same call for B movies and, and a lot of the films were B movies, right? And, and the studios started recycling their A movies from the forties as B movies in the fifties. So they weren't producing B films. The people who were making B films for the studios in the forties started making television in the fifties. Right. So you saw, you saw things gravitating towards TV. So the writers uh, who were making 60 minute B movies in the forties were now making Playhouse 90 and Alfred Hitchcock presents and stuff like that in the 1950s. And that uh, the, cinematographers went to TV. Uh, the look of noir changed because it didn't broadcast well on television. Uh, it would bleed out. So the studio bosses actually said, don't shoot the movies dark anymore. You got to lighten them up because the, the TV tubes can't handle it. They've, they've got to be lighter that, you know, if we're going to sell these films to TV. So, so that certainly killed off the look of film noir. But then, you know, it, it keeps coming back. You know, you see, then it became a lot of independent films were made 
that were inspired by noir. You know, I mean, Stanley Kubrick's The Killing is an independently made movie from the mid-50s that was clearly inspired by film noir. You know, The Burglar by Paul Wenkos and Blast of Silence by Alan Barron. These, these were films that were inspired by the movies of the 40s, but now had an independent film look from the late 50s, early 60s. And, and, you know, and then it changed in the 60s because everything started to go to color. Black and white was gone. And, uh, you know, you know where all that leads. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you, you talk in the book about the killing kind of being one of the first conscious noirs that's recalling earlier noirs. And that's only earlier from a few years before because it's obviously in the shadow of the asphalt jungle. But nevertheless, you know, Kubrick's this young kid who's kind of making movies he grew up on at that point, as opposed to, you know, the old guys in the business who are just continuing on with what they'd been doing. Precisely. I, I think that's, there's a generational shift that symbolically the killing sort of perfectly represents, you know, uh, it, it's a young kid paying tribute to his, <laughs> to his forefathers. Right. <laughs> All right, well, let's talk about the Film Noir Foundation. Uh, one of the new things you're working on is a couple of noirs from Argentina. I mean, it's no surprise that there are noirs from other countries, France, or Jean-Pierre Melville, and you know, Criterion has that Nikatsu noir set from Japan and things like that. But Argentina is not a country that we think a lot about film. Uh, tell me about these noirs. Uh, in 2008, uh, I took a trip with my wife to Argentina and in research and contacted some people. I, I do this now whenever I travel overseas. I try to find people where I'm going who are into film, who are cinephiles and might lead me to noir that I wouldn't otherwise know about. Um, and that's how I met uh, this gentleman. Well, first I met Paolo Felix Didier who was the woman sort of credited with discovering uh, Fritz Lang's Metropolis, the complete uh, version, the most, the most complete version of Metropolis that had yet been discovered. And uh, having met Paula, she then introduced me to Fernando Martin Pena, who really was like the guy behind all of this, because he had tracked the existence of that print of Metropolis for over 20 years. Uh, and and finally got his hands on it. Long story. Uh, but Fernando and I became very good friends, and he introduced me to a number of these films. He's an he's a incredible film collector and, and is like the guardian of Argentine film history because, uh, as he would be the first to tell you, there is no national uh, film archive or no cinematheque in Argentina to preserve its film history. And there is a great film history in Argentina. You know, John Alton, who is considered to be the greatest noir cinematographer of all time, uh, got his in Argentina. You know, he's Hungarian, but he, you know, Buenos Aires is a very cosmopolitan city and people came there from all over the world. And Alton was one of them. And in the 1930s, he helped build uh, a studio called Lumetal, which produced, you know, the majority of the films made in Argentina. And Alton was, you know, not just a cinematographer, but a very prominent 
a filmmaker in Argentina. And then when he came to the States, um, you know, when, when Perón took power in Argentina, he started dictating how the film industry would work and uh, all left and came to Hollywood. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, people just kind of wrote off cinema history under Perón, but there were a lot of really great films made during that time, you know, it's like mid forties to, to 1955 or six. And, and, uh, that's where I've been drawing from. And Fernando has been educating me about these filmmakers, uh, Carlos Hugo Christensen and, uh, uh, Hugo Fregonese, who eventually would come to Hollywood and actually make films in Hollywood. Right. Uh, Fernando Ayala, who, who, uh, Fernando Ayala and, uh, Roman Vignoli Barreto, who's uh, directed uh, El Vampiro Negro and uh, a film called uh, La Bestia Debe Morir, uh, The Beast Must Die, which is based on a very famous crime novel by uh, Nicholas Blake. Uh, and, and El Vampiro Negro is a reimagining of Fritz Lang's M set in Buenos Aires. And these films are all magnificent. And I'm, I'm very proud to uh, have played a... Uh, the, the the leading role in reviving them and getting them seen again. Yeah, no, I, I saw the um, Vampiro Negro, which is not at all what you would think from that title. Uh, you know, more, no, a more no. lurid version of M, uh, and quite interesting. Although no one will ever replace Peter Lorre, but but very interestingly shot. <laughs> uh, oddly, you know, there's a shot of Chicago in the middle of it. The, yes, I know because it was that shot was borrowed. That's interesting that you pointed that out because that shot was borrowed from uh, the Argentine version of Native Son. <laughs> uh, you know, because R- yeah. Richard Wright's Native Son could not be made in America, so it was made in Argentina. That's another film that I've actually been involved in the restoration of, and for whatever reason, they borrowed that single shot. Uh, that uh, Pierre Chanel, who directed Native Son, had come to America and just stock footage around Chicago, <laughs> and yeah. one one of those pieces of film ended up in uh, in El Vampiro Negro. Yeah, it's, I was just gonna say, you know, watching it as a Chicagoan to suddenly see those buses and like the the turret on the edge of a building—it's so recognizably Chicago to me that I, you know, I like yeah. ran it back yeah. three times to to look at it and see if I could tell where it was. But that's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope there's more to come from Argentina because there's all kinds of great stuff, and and we've actually preserved some films that we haven't. At the time, I just wanted to get the films out of Argentina and make copies of them, even though I didn't have the funds to do a full restoration. So I'm hoping that I'll be able to, to you know, the success of these Blu-rays will dictate whether or not we bother to go ahead and uh, and restore these other ones. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the Film Noir Foundation. What, uh, you know, why does noir need its own foundation here? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I guess the, the simple answer is because uh, when I was programming the festivals, I there would be a particular film I wanted to show, and I'd learn, well, there's no print of it. And I couldn't believe that that was possible. I've, I've 
since learned that it's very possible and becoming more possible all the time. So I created the foundation to use the proceeds from the festivals to do, you know, these restorations so that the films could be seen. Um, the reality is a lot of films that I talk about in my book were independently made films. Every, every film that we have restored has been independently made. It's, they're not financed by a major studio. So at a certain point, ownership of that film becomes questionable if the company that made the film goes out of business. It's like, so now who owns the film? Who has the film? And so that, that's a big part of what happens in film restoration is the paper trail that you, you have to follow to realize, well, you know, the, the distribution deal ended with 20th Century Fox. So who has the film and who has the rights to the film and where do we find it? How do we restore it? So this is, uh, this is why the foundation came into existence. I know you always get asked, like, what are the best noirs of all time? So I'm not going to ask that. We know what they are. They're out of the <laughs> past you. and double indemnity and touch of evil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, tell me a few. <laughs> well, like, those, those, are the, those are the films you said, out of the past and double indemnity, are always the two films when people say, if I want a crash course in film noir, what should I watch? <laughs> those are the two. Yeah. Um, but like, name some obscures. I mean, I love noir when the star is some, you know, somebody fairly low rent, and the production is, you know, shot on location because the outdoors is free and stuff like that. Um, you know, so I mean, you, like you mentioned, Ninety Nine River Street a little while ago, and that's that's right. a perfect example of one. I mean, the big star is John Payne, and it's just a gritty little story. You know, I forget, is he, he's a cab driver, his friend's a cab driver, so I don't know, something like that. Yeah, you know, ex-boxer, ex-boxer yeah. with a big chip on his shoulder turned cab driver, and it's one of those great, it happens in the course of one night, you know, oh my God, I love that movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, that's a perfect example of a noir discovery. So what are some other noir discoveries that people should go check out? Well, I mean, I'm not, I'm not touting our own thing here, but Feel free. Uh, some of the films that the, found, that the foundation has restored, like Woman on the Run, yeah. that was a film that had completely fallen off the radar. And, it, and I just think it's a great screenplay. And I was shocked to you know, do my research and find production files and things that indicated that a lot of that was kind of written on the fly. Like, like Dennis O'Keefe and Sheridan were writing their own dialogue. <laughs> no, no continuity script exists for that movie. But I found a memo from one of the publicists saying, we can't show critics or anybody a, a, a copy of the script because we never made one because <laughs> O'Keefe and Sheridan were like making up their dialogue when they were shooting on location in San Francisco. And I just thought that is fantastic. Now, Dennis O'Keefe was a pretty good writer and, and uh, you know, he, he wrote a few film scripts of his own and Ann Sheridan was hysterically funny, like had a notable wit, everybody said. And if you ever read interviews with Ann Sheridan, it, it definitely comes through. So that doesn't surprise me at all. So 
Uh, Woman on the Run is an example. Uh, Too Late for Tears with Liz Scott and Dan Durier was a film that was a revelation to me when I finally discovered it. You know, there are some examples of this in in my book where I have a whole um, uh, sidebar thing on Belita, the ice queen yes. of noir, who, <laughs> who made three three movies in which she ice skates. And you know, a couple of those films are really great. I love The Hunted. Uh, I, I really like the weird theatricality of the gangster. And then she did this crazy film for Monogram called Suspense, where she like is a skating dominatrix. <laughs> <laughs> How can you not like that, right? Yeah. So yeah, there's there's a lot of these films out there. That was that honestly, Mike. That was one of the main reasons that I wanted to do another edition of the book was to include films just like that that like slipped under the radar. Some of them are still hard to see. Like there's this film from 1945 called Jealousy. Yeah. Uh, that Dalton Trumbo co-wrote the screenplay. And this is uh, this Gustav Machini that we're talking about. And, uh, it, you know, it, it's unlike any other film of its time. And it, but it's a B movie that has been in total obscurity. And uh, I, I'd love to see that get restored who knows, I may end up doing it, but uh, I think the Film Foundation has also expressed some interest in maybe restoring that. Um, the only the only print we know of is at the British Film Institute, and it doesn't have any end titles. So, um, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens with that. You are on one of the worst waterfronts in the world. It reeks of iniquity. And yet on this street where sin walks arm in arm with sudden death, a woman of great courage uses her sex as a weapon to save a man's life. We could have fun. Not tonight. Honey, you don't know what you're missing. I said, not tonight. The revised edition of Dark City, The Lost World of Film Noir, is out now from TCM and Running Press. Flicker Alley's releases of two Argentinian noirs, 1952's The Beast Must Die and 1956's The Bitter Stems, can be pre-ordered now for release in November. Links for all of these will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Brandy Cox, Stephen Hill, and Eddie Muller. And thanks to Cita Zinc at Running Press. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing at the podcast app of your choice. And if you can, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks. Why you didn't call the law? Should you?
I guess not. 